speaking here of the love of Christ, Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest love we can show to someone, to be willing to lay down our lives for them. I would like you to please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 5. And here we actually see a greater love than that. Greater love than laying down your life. Well, not greater love than laying down your life, but the one whom you laid your life down for may demonstrate a greater love. This is one of those passages that's filled with joyous and triumphant chords. Paul has been expounding in the book of Romans the great doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification is a judicial act of God, God acting as the judge, whereby He declares a sinner just. Uh, That would be, in our terms, calling a criminal just. That seems like a contradiction of terms, doesn't it? How can a criminal be just? He's a criminal. He's broken the law. That's not just. But God declares a sinner just based not upon them and anything they've done or everything they've done deserves condemnation, wrath. But He declares them just on the basis of what His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did when He died for them on the cross. He begins this chapter with the words, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's what the Gospel is all about. It's the righteousness that has been granted to us or imputed to us on the basis of what Christ has done through faith in Him. Uh, The great blessings flow from being justified by God, justified by faith, Uh, the first he lays down is that we have peace with God. That's the removal of wrath and judgment. Those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will not come under the wrath of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. He says, we also have, in verse 2, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have this access, access into this condition, this place, this acceptance with God, this grace in which we stand. And then he goes on to, to speak of other things, but I want us to look there where he says, Uh, In verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Christian has this hope, this hope of gaining this access, of having this peace, of being reconciled to God. And it's a well-grounded hope. It's a secure hope. It's a hope, he says, that will not disappoint. 
It will not put us to shame. Why? Because he says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, this isn't speaking of, of our love to God, but his love to us. That's the only solid and true ground of assurance for the believer. It's not his love to God because that wavers. Sometimes he feels that love. Sometimes he's ready to demonstrate that love. And then other times he senses a complete absence of that love. If we're basing our assurance or our hope in that love, it'll be a very fickle assurance. It'll be here today and gone tomorrow. But he's speaking of God's love to us. The believer's hope is firmly anchored in God's redeeming love to his children. And he says that it's the Holy Spirit who was given to believers that imparts this assurance of God's love. In fact, he says that uh, the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts or, or the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Uh, When he says he pours it out in our hearts, it indicates an abundant diffusion of his love. William Hendrickson said, God's love is not rationed out drop by drop. On the contrary, he says, the Holy Spirit is poured out into the hearts of the redeemed. In other words, it is supplied freely, abundantly, copiously, lavishly. He just pours it out into our hearts. Now, the love of God which is poured out into our hearts is not merely some warm, inward, fuzzy feeling of goodwill or or even the feeling of being loved. That can waver. Sometimes we feel God's love and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we feel a closeness and other times we feel the heavens are like brass. And our hearts are like brass. But here, he's speaking of this love that, though it may involve feelings, is far, far more than feelings, far superior to feelings. It's something, Paul goes on to say, that can be objectively demonstrated. How do we know the love of God? Now, some people just take it for granted. That God is love, and so He loves everyone, and He loves everyone so much, and they just they they just seem to think that this is certain, uh, but they have no grounds for believing that. But here's a love that can be demonstrated. You can point to it. You can show it. You can say, "Look, it's right here for us to see, to witness." It's right here, uh, and this is what Paul's doing in the rest of this passage. He He's saying that the hope that we have is rooted and grounded in the love of God that has been abundantly demonstrated where? By the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is vital for the believer's assurance of salvation to know the love of God. That's why people sometimes... uh, struggle with assurance. They're they're looking for some feeling of assurance uh, that they feel just a warmness of God's love, 
But here is something that can be pointed to, demonstrated, shown. Here's something we can go back to whether our feelings are feeling or not. (laughs) Whether we're feeling something or whether we're not. And here Paul speaks, first of all, of the preceding existence of God's love. He goes on to say in verse 6 and following, For when we were still without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet or still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, go and read the rest of this particular passage. He says, For if we were, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. That reconciliation is reconciliation with God uh, that presupposes that there was an enmity between man and God. Uh, There was a broken relationship, but now we have been reconciled to Him. Friends that were uh, had a falling out and and now they've been brought back together. That's what He's speaking of here. But notice He speaks of the pre-existence of God's love uh, notice all, all the wiles and winds in this passage in verse 6. When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And then again in verse 8, he says, um, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So he's speaking of of a time when we were still sinners. That's why we were still in a state of sin. We're always sinners. We're sinners right now. Saved sinners, but sinners still. But he's speaking about sinners under the wrath of God. When we were his enemies, we were still in what's called a state of sin. Now, a believer in Christ is no longer in that state of sin. He's been delivered. Now he's been redeemed. He still has that warfare going on within, whereby he still sins against God. Uh, But that's not his nature any longer. Now he has a new nature. He loves God. He, He wants to please God. Even though he still sins, he's not in a state of sin as he was. That state of sin is called several things in the Scripture. It's called being dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. In Romans chapter 8, he speaks of being enemies of God. Uh, While we were yet enemies, or uh, the, the natural mind, he says, is at enmity with God. That's our natural state. That's how we're born into the world. We're sinners. He calls us, by nature, children of wrath. We were destined to judgment and wrath. 
And clearly what Paul intends to convey here is that God's love to us preceded our love to him. He doesn't love us because we love him. No, it's the other way around. We love him because he first loved us. That's what we read in the scripture reading this morning. First John chapter four, verses nine and ten. He says in here in his love, uh, here in the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love or in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then he makes it very clear in verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. So there was a prior existence of God's love before we loved him. He loved us. Uh, when did he begin to love us? Well, the scriptures go on and even in the book of Romans, Paul goes on to unfold this. And in chapter nine, he uses the example of Jacob and Esau. And he speaks of Jacob and Esau still being in the womb. They were twins in the womb of their mother. And in their womb, God said, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, have I loved and Esau, I have hated. So here are twins in the womb and one he loves, but they're in the womb before they were born. He loved them. He loved the one and hated the other. But there was a prior love. And then he goes on to explain that that this this plan of God, this plan of salvation and his love for his chosen reaches back actually further than that. It goes back into eternity. Back even to eternity before he created the first being, before he created the world, before he created the stars. There was the love that he had had in his heart towards him. Jesus Christ, who's the one who was sent, demonstrating his love and dying for sinners. In the book of Revelation, he's called the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. All the way back. You keep going back, as far back as you can go, there God's love was in existence towards his own. Um, uh, even from eternity, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. Again, that's going back into eternity. Charles Spurgeon, I believe, said it the best when he said, In the very beginning, when this great universe lay in the mind of God, like unborn forests in an acorn cup, Long ere the echoes waked the solitudes, before the mountains were brought forth, and long ere the light flashed through the sky, God loved His chosen creatures. Before there was creatureship, when the ether was not fanned by the angels' wings, when space itself had not existence, when there was nothing save God alone, even then in that loneliness of deity, and in that deep, quiet, and profundity, his bowels moved with love for his chosen. Their names were written on his heart, and then they were dear to his soul. Jesus loved his people before the foundation of the world, even from eternity. And when he called us, he said, with loving, with loving kindness, 
have I loved thee. In eternal loving kindness, I have loved you. It was a prior love. But also, here Paul speaks of the exceeding greatness of God's love. Not only is his love, did his love precede ours, it also greatly exceeded our love. I don't mean that it only exceeded our love to him, which at that time, of course, was non-existent. But it exceeded all love that has ever been displayed to fellow men. It's what John Murray calls the unheardness or the unheard ofness of God's love. John Flavel, the Puritan, said it transcends all creature love and human understanding. We see great love that creatures have towards one another, especially a man and a woman, the greatness of that love, or a parent to their child. Not not have children, it's hard for you to imagine that kind of love, but it's interesting and wonderful to see our own children having children, and now to see a love blossoming that wasn't there before. They see such a love, such a strong love, And yet God's love far exceeds that. Far, far exceeds it. The love of God is unprecedented. It is unparalleled. Scripture often speaks of God's love as in indescribable terms. In Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul prays for the Christians there, He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It passes knowledge. In John, 1 John chapter 3 verse 1, there John is speaking of our adoption as sons and he begins with these words, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Uh, Literally, this phrase, what manner of love, literally means of what country? Where did this come from? We've never seen anything like this. John Stott wrote this. He said, it's as if the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world, that he wonders what country it may come from. Where we've never seen a love like this. The most famous verse in all the Bible says it in this way, for God so loved the world. That little word so. You put that in front of another word, it just expands it. Sometimes infinitely, and in this case, infinitely. For God so loved the world that He gave His own begotten Son. God's love is unheard of. And that's what Paul says here in verses 7 and 8. He says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. It does happen, he says, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the exceeding greatness of His love is seen in these two things. It's seen, first of all, in the unworthiness of the object of his love. And secondly, in the greatness of the gift of God's love. Let's look at those two things for a moment. The unworthiness of the objects of God's love. We can be very giving 
to those we consider worthy of our gift. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not too many people I can think of that I would actually die for. Um, I'm not one of those that wants to be a hero, uh, but uh, I can't imagine just dying for someone. But there are certain people in my life that, yes, I would die for, that I consider them worthy to die for. Those whom I love greatly, I would die for. Uh, Usually the more worthy we consider a person, the greater gift we give to them. Even when human beings extend mercy, there's there's some spark of goodness they see in the object of the mercy that makes them want to do the right thing and help them out. You might see someone you don't know, but you see they're in need, so your pity goes out to them and you'll help them. But to die for them is a whole different thing. Well, Paul concedes the possibility that there might indeed be someone good enough to die for, and yet he says it's a rare thing. Perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God's love is exceedingly great because it was shown not to the deserving, but to the undeserving. Not to the commendable, but to the uncommendable. Notice how he describes the object of his love. In verse 6, he says, while we were still without strength. We were without strength. Uh, that, that means we were guilty and vile and helpless. Unable to lift a finger, as J.I. Packer said, to do God's will or to better our spiritual lot. We were without strength. And then he says <clears throat> in verse uh, in verse um, uh, verse six, he, he calls them ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Well, the words godly and ungodly are words, words which describe our relationship to God. The essence of ungodliness is to say, I don't care what God wants or what God thinks. It's to live in the world without God. He's not your consideration. You don't make your decisions. You don't do this or not do that because of what God wants. It's to live as though He doesn't exist. To live without respect to His worship, without honor and respect to His Word. That's the ungodly. In verse 8, He calls them sinners, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A sinner is someone who sins. And sin is what? It's a want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. God has a law. It's summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. But men care nothing about God's law and they seem to care less and less. But that's what a sinner is. They've broken God's law. They've violated His law. We think of sin and being a sinner is no big deal. After all, we're all sinners. But we're not very good judges of the heinousness of sin. It's because we're so familiar with it. It's something we do all the time. Uh, David even said, David in the Bible, a man after God's own heart, said, my sins are more than the hairs of my head. I sin a lot. And the more we sin, the less we think about it, the less we are affected by it. 
when I was a young man, I was a meat cutter for a while and worked in a meat room at a restaurant cutting meat all day long. And the cooks would come to pick up the meat to take it up and cook. And they'd walk in the meat room and they'd go, oh, it smells so bad in here. I didn't smell anything. <laughs> I was in it all day long. didn't bother me a bit. It's because I was so used to it. And sinners are that way. We're not a real good judge on how terrible sin is. But when we come into the presence of a holy God, then we'll understand something of that. That God is so holy. The Bible says His eyes are too pure to behold wickedness. And yet, men, we drink iniquity like water, Job says. So we're not the best judges of it, but sin is an awful thing. We've broken God's law. In verse 10, he says, we were enemies. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. The Bible speaks of being an enemy of God. In Romans 8, it says, the natural mind is at enmity with God for what is not subject to God's law, neither indeed can it be. It doesn't submit to God's law. God's law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. And yet men make fun of following God's law. If someone tries to do the right thing in school, kids in school, other kids will make fun of you. They'll think, oh, you're trying to be... I don't use this expression anymore, I'm sure, but we used to hear the goody two-shoes. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, except they're just making fun of you for trying to do the right thing. Goody two-shoes. Who do you think you are? Oh, you're sprouting wings. They want to make fun of you. Oh, he wants to be a good boy or she wants to be a good little girl. And they make fun of, of young people who are, have not experienced sexual relationships yet. So much so that Young people are afraid to even let anyone know they haven't and might even lie about it. It's because others will make fun of it. Our hearts are at enmity with God. There's a twofold enmity. It's our enmity towards God and God's enmity towards us. His wrath is an expression of that enmity. God hates sin. And He has sworn in His holiness that He will judge sin. Then again, to go back to that phrase, without strength in verse 6, or helpless, or incapable of helping ourselves, undeserving of God's help, not even seeking or desiring His help. We wish God would just leave us alone. And that's the description of every single one of us by nature. Humanly speaking and comparatively speaking, we might discover someone relatively good enough to die for. But Paul is envisioning the case that God didn't find such a one. We might think of someone we would die for, but God is looking, who would I die for or send my son to die for? There's none to be good enough. There's none righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. In Romans chapter 3, verse 11, he says, There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become, become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. While we were yet sinners, Paul says, he levels all of us. 
There are no righteous men or good men that perhaps someone would even dare to die for. We are all sinners. We're all ungodly. We're all without strength. We're all enemies of God. You see, God doesn't find beautiful, valuable, worthy recipients of His love. He comes, though, to the unlovely, the unworthy, the undeserving, the undesirable. And this is one of the greatest differences between God's love toward us and our love towards Him. You see, there is in God everything that commends our love to Him. He is a good God. He is a gracious God. He is a just and holy God. He is a beautiful God. When you look around at the beautiful things that God has created, the majestic things, He is altogether lovely. But there's nothing lovely about sin or sinners. John Owen, the Puritan, said, Sin holds out all the unloveliness and undesirableness that can be in a creature. We even use the expression that something is as ugly as sin. Because sin, if we see it in its right nature, is ugly. Now, when Satan tempts us with sin, it looks beautiful. It looks desirable. But in the end, it's death. You see, sin destroys. It tears apart. It devours. It's selfish. It's deceiving. Sin, in all of its forms, destroys individuals, marriages, families, friendships, churches, communities. Wherever sin rears its ugly head, whatever form it assumes, it destroys. We ought to be enemies of sin. Think of that the next time you use your tongue for evil purposes. In the book of James, he says the tongue is full of what? Deadly poison. That's how ugly sin is, how deceitful and destroying sin is. He likens it to a tiny spark that ignites a flame that rages and destroys everything. There's nothing good or lovely about sin. Even the pleasures that I just spoke of, the Bible tells us they're only for a season. And then the ugliness comes out. It's deceptive. It's deadly. Sin is bad. There's no virtue in it. And that's the amazing thing about God's love. It's towards sinners. We look at sin and ourselves as sinners We try to separate sin from the sinner, but in some ways it's very difficult because it's the sinner who sins. It's a choice. It's an act. In Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He quickened us and made us alive. I love Titus 3, 3, verses 3 and 4 where... Paul speaks about himself and the other Christians before they were Christians. And he says, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's the old man. Doesn't look so good, does he? 
get them all dressed up and cleaned up. But he's still all of those things, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, he saved us. He saved us. He came to us in that condition. So we see the greatness of his love when we consider the unworthy objects of his love. But we also see the greatness of His love and the greatness of the gift of His love. Notice He says in verse 6, In due time, or some translations read, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, He could be speaking of our helplessness. The time of man's extremity, John Murray says. The time of his extremity, at the furthest point, at the, at the end of his rope, we would say. That was the time, Murray said, for God's efficacious work in the accomplishments wrought by the death of His Son. There's nothing else that could save us. We're doomed to destruction. Doomed to destruction, that's right. The law couldn't save us. Paul says in Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. I love the little poem that Martin Lloyd-Jones uses from time to time. He said, Oh, the love and kindness of our God when all was sin and shame, He to the fight and to the rescue came. That's when God sent at the right time, when we could not save ourselves. I love that hymn that we sing when it says, He saw me ruined by the fall and loved me notwithstanding all. What did He do? Well, He gave His only begotten Son. This is my beloved Son, He says. He was the Father's delight from all eternity. Yes, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, but the Scriptures everywhere speak of God's love to His eternal Son. In Romans 8.32, Paul uses this as an example of God's love and, and sworn commitment to us. He said, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Now, can you imagine that? I said, can you imagine laying down your life for someone? Eh, maybe you would. How many of you would, would how many of you would lay down your son or your daughter's life for someone else and for someone unworthy? Sometimes when when prisoners are exchanged, we say, "Well, why is this prisoner who is not so bad swapped for this prisoner who's terrible?" <laughs> it just doesn't seem right or even or fair. Would you give your own child up to die for someone else? Well, we can't envision something happening like that, but it did happen in the deity, in the Godhead. God gave His only begotten Son. The Son of His love. The extent to which He gave Him, He says, while we were yet sinners, in verse 6, or without strength, in due time Christ 
died for the ungodly. That was the extent to which He gave Him. His death was for us. It was on our behalf. It wasn't just any death. He didn't die a martyr's death. He didn't die a natural death. He died a substitutionary death. What that means is simply this, that He died on our behalf for our sake. He took what we as sinners deserve. This is why the Bible makes so much of Christ's sinlessness. There's only one who's never sinned, and that's the Son of God. You ever think of that? Look at all the people in the world. Could you find one who's never sinned? Not even one. You see a child, and he's so lovely, a newborn child, you're holding him in your arms, and you're looking at how beautiful, how perfect, how everything is so right. Give them time, and sometimes not much time, and the sin nature starts coming out. But not with the Lord Jesus. He was perfect in all His ways. Holy, harmless, undefiled, the Bible says, without sin. But He did this so He could take our, our sin. Otherwise, He would have to die for His own sin. But He had no sin of His own to die for. But He took upon Himself our own sin. Our sin, our wickedness was charged to His account. And so when he died, he died not just a natural death, not even a violent death at the hands of men, though it certainly was. He died a death that's called a propitiation. That was read in the Scripture reading this morning. 1 John chapter 10. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be, what? The propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means to make propitious. That didn't help much. Um, But to be propitious means to appease or to quench God's wrath. Or better, to satisfy God's wrath. That's really the heart of the Gospel. That's the height and depth of the love of God to sinners. He satisfied divine wrath. This is why in the Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, The Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father three times with tears, with sweat and tears, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew He was soon to be arrested and soon to be tried and sent to the cross. And there on the cross, He would suffer not only at the hands of men, but under the wrath of God. We sing that hymn, and I believe it's in our... Uh, hymns for the Lord's Supper. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would, none would rise to interpose. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. No one intervened to save him. No one could. But the deepest stroke wasn't what men did, but what God did in pouring out His wrath upon His only begotten Son. And that's why He cried out on the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Forsaken Me, the Son of Your love. There was, in a sense, God turning His back on the Son. 
as he was pouring his wrath upon him. But it was on the cross that he satisfied divine wrath. Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he said, For he, that is God the Father, made him, the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. Christ became our substitute. That's the love of God, that God would so love sinners who've rebelled against Him, who want nothing to do with Him, who are not seeking after Him. Not even one that's good. He sent His Son to die on the cross in their place. That's greater love than you've ever heard of. What a great unparalleled manifestation of God's love. Now, God loves us at all times, but we don't always see it. Not always to see God's love in His providence. We sing to Him, behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Well, the face is still smiling, but it's hidden from us. We don't see it. But at the cross, we see it. We see it as clear as day. Here in His love, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave Himself to be the propitiation for our sins. What security we have in this love of Christ. It's not rooted in our own fickle, unpredictable, fluctuating love to God, but in His great, great love to us. That's Paul's simple and yet profound argument. If God loved us when we were still sinners and sent His Son to die on our behalf, will He not save us completely and finally now that we've been reconciled to Him through the death of His Son? This love should produce in us a security. It should inspire us to love God. This is one of the great differences between God's love toward us and our love towards Him. There's everything in God that commends our love to Him and especially His love to us. But there's nothing in us to commend His love to us. That it should inspire us to love God. Love Him because He first loved us. You remember the woman who came to Jesus and she was weeping at the table, wiped washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And the Pharisee there who knew nothing of grace, he said if he only knew what manner of woman this was, he would have nothing to do with her. But Jesus, knowing what he was thinking, he said, to whom is forgiven much, does what? They love much. It should inspire us to love others. Especially fellow believers. And that's John's argument in 1 John 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When we think of the great love He's had towards us, which of all our friends to save us could or would have shed His blood, but our Jesus died to have us reconciled in Him to God. This was boundless love indeed. Jesus is a friend in need. This should cause us to love the unconverted around us, however bad they are. We should have pity 
upon them. We should cry out in love towards them, praying for them, witnessing to them. They were without hope, just like we were without hope. That's why Paul, when he talks about sinners, and uh, he said, we were that way, just like the rest. Who made you to differ? How, how are you in this condition of being loved by God? You're no more worthy than this person over here who's horrible, a terrible sinner. Well, your heart ought to go out and pity to them. And your prayers ought to go up to God for them. And you ought to be sharing your faith in Christ with them. Oh, what a great love. An unparalleled love. A demonstration of love. May God help us as we come to the Lord's table. This is what He did to show us, to demonstrate His love toward us. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Gracious Father.